It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Tonight, Where Do We Go From Here continues. Featuring Stacey Abrams, Bishop William J. Barber II, Charles Blow, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Ava DuVernay, Jennifer Everhart, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram Kindi, David Oyelowo, Rashad Robinson, what matters now? What matters next? What do we want? What are our demands? Where do we go from here? Part two begins now. Good evening, everyone. This is part two of our own Spotlight special. You know, we can all feel that our country, the United States, is in a moment of reckoning right now. And it is not just with police violence against Black people, but with systemic racism that is rooted inside the soul and psyche of our country and culture. So the question that's been on my mind is, are we willing to finally face in this moment the reality and step into what can be a watershed moment? And also, what exactly will we do? Where do we go from here? So for the first time, it feels like a lot of people are waking up and recognizing that we know better. But the question is, will we in this moment in time, do better, as Maya Angelou always said. So I also have to say that there is not a black person in America, I don't think, uh, certainly anybody who's working in corporate America, who hasn't been called and asked for advice on how to handle this moment. Ava mentioned that a little bit yesterday, or called by their white friends, just wanting to know what they can do. Tonight, we're gonna talk about that and also about what do we want white people in particular to know? And what do we want them to do in this moment? I mentioned opening yesterday's show that it was back in 1985 that I did my first show with Jane Elliott. She's a woman known for blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment that she's been doing for years. And I just heard Killer Mike the other day telling people to go to YouTube looking at some of those videos. Well, we did an experiment with an audience where we literally in the morning separated the brown eyes from the blue eyes and the blue eyed people were made to feel uncomfortable during that show, made to wait in the line longer, weren't taken to the room where they got coffee and donuts. And even as that show was ending, an hour later, 
one woman was still so livid that she had had to experience being discriminated against for an hour. And I remember Jane Elliott saying to her at the time, imagine this for a lifetime. So that was, you know, the beginning of a conversation of what white privilege is all about. And I wanted to just talk about that word privilege. I think, especially for middle class and working class or white folk, that it's been a difficult term for them to accept or to grasp because I've heard friends of mine say that the word doesn't resonate because the word privilege is associated with affluence. And when you think about privilege, you think of lifestyle, you think of a guy in a fancy car on his way to a country club, you think of being wealthy, wealthy. And I think that for a lot of people, white people in particular, that word is hard for them to accept. Maybe a more descriptive term is advantage. I saw a Missy Elliott post the other day that read, privilege is when you think something's not a problem because it's not a problem to you personally. So I wanna unpack that for a few moments if we can. Nicole. Yeah, so I saw uh, last week a white sociologist gave an analogy that I think uh, makes it easy to understand what white privilege is. And what she said is, white privilege is uh, swimming in a stream and you're swimming uh, in the direction that that the stream is going. You're swimming along with the current. It doesn't mean that you're not working hard. It doesn't mean that you're not struggling, but you're swimming along in the current. And that the Black experience is working hard and swimming against the current. That we're having to paddle harder, we're having to work harder, and oftentimes we're being pushed back by that current. So it's not that no poor white person exists. It's not that white people have never struggled, but they are struggling in a system that is built to move them forward. We are struggling in a system that is built to push us back. Mayor Bottoms. So you think of the words of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, we wear the mask, grins and lies and hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. That's the beauty of this moment. For the first time in my lifetime, Black people across America are able to unapologetically say we are angry and we are frustrated and we are hurting. But I think in the same way, white people across America are unapologetically able to say, I am ignorant and perhaps I am complicit And I think for all of the hurt and pain and agony that's gone into where we are in this moment in time, I think that is the silver lining, that we get to have open conversations about what white privilege means, because usually that's a conversation that we have behind closed doors and we dare not have it uh, in front of mixed company because we don't want to offend anyone or put our positions in jeopardy. But I think the beauty of this moment is that we're even discussing it and we're having a real conversation about what it means and even how people can have that privilege and be completely oblivious uh, to being empowered by that privilege. Jennifer? So white privilege is uh, when you're protected by state actors and when you know, the, the systems and society are there to work uh, for you and not against you. So when we think about white privilege in that way, and then you pair that with the fact that white um, people are not taught to see color, right? So at the same time, there's privilege. There's also 
um, you know, just like not acknowledging uh, race or not acknowledging uh, color. And, and researchers have shown that by the time uh, children are 10 years old, they already know, uh, white children, it's not polite to talk about race. You're not supposed to do that. Nothing good will come uh, from it. Um, yet, when the goal is to not see color, uh, those children also don't see discrimination. Those adults uh, also don't see discrimination. So there's a way in which color blindness is offered to white Americans uh, as a way to fight injustice, but you know it actually uh, you know promotes that injustice. I, I think it's it, uh, it's easier to understand privilege when you think of it as privilege and oppression existing as a seesaw. You are only up because I am down. That, that privilege is a relative position. If there was no oppression, there would be no privilege. And you have to understand privilege as being not only personal, but communal. If your community had people in who experienced the privilege, they had wealth, they could donate to the hospital, they could donate to the school, they could keep the streets, the, the streets safe, they could build the park. That's the communal privilege that even if your family experienced struggle, the community did not. Privilege also exists as a possibility in the sense that when the intergenerational accumulation and transference of wealth was prohibited to some people, it was not to you. If your forefathers did not generate enough wealth to transfer, that's one thing, but they could have. There was a possibility of privilege that was actively denied to my great-grandfather. He worked on that sharecropper. He earned the money to buy that house. And they sent the terrorists and they shot through it. And his wife left because he didn't want her kids to get killed. And he had to make a choice. Do I stay and fight for this land that I have earned? Or do I leave and follow the woman that I love? And he chose love. But that is an active barrier to the accumulation and transference of intergenerational wealth. That too is a privilege. Okay. Professor Kendi, we're talking about what we spoke about last night, this history of racist power and, and policy. And then the question becomes fundamentally, I think, and, and we Americans don't want to answer this question. We don't want to break it down in, in just this simple way, is that you have people who have been arguing from the beginning of this country that the problem, that the racial problem is people, is Black people. There's something wrong with them. And, and what we've been saying is, no, from the beginning of this country, the, the problem then, just like the problem now, is power and policy. And so if you believe the problem is Black people, then you're going to go out trying to figure out ways to either civilize or incarcerate or segregate or even deport Black and, and, and even Brown people. But if you realize that, that the problem is, is, is policy and power, because there's nothing wrong with Black people, there's nothing inferior about Black people, then you're going to focus on changing power and policy. Oh, sorry, uh, Debbie Edelo here, just jumping in. I, I think with what Kendi just, just said there about it seeming like we as Black people are somehow the problem to be solved, what is also not being acknowledged is that baked into the inception, the foundation of America as a country is this white privilege. We were stolen from a continent and brought here, and that knee on the neck started there. But also, foundationally, America was built with a knee on the neck of the Native Americans. It happened to the Mexicans as well. It is something that this country is built on. I, I think what's happening in this moment is that there is a widespread acknowledgement that something is fundamentally wrong. If we can reach a consensus on that fact, 
what went wrong. There is a sin baked into this country and how it was built. And one of the asks I have, and there are plenty of people in this panel who are going to have great things to say about policy and, and, and socioeconomics, but I want to go to a spiritual place. One of my asks is, can we reach a consensus that this country needs to repent? It needs to repent of that sin. The church in this country, so many people in America identify as Christians. We have done this thing whereby religion and politics have become conflated. And so therefore the idea of repenting, the idea of embracing the fact that there is something wrong with America when it comes to race has now been tied to politics and tribalism. But in this moment, when I have white people calling me in tears and I am now feeling the need to help them through their pain, which of course is a completely confusing thing, what really needs to happen is that you need to gather with your fellow white people, recognize that you are beneficiaries of this sin. You need to repent of it, whether you're a believer uh, uh, from a religious point of view or not, you have to come to a place of repentance in order for there to be salvation beyond. I don't think anybody understands what you mean, uh, particularly if you're a white person, you're saying repent, repent of what, David? Repent of the original sin. And what I mean by that is that this privilege is baked into everything. Reverend Barber. There are three ways history changes in this country. War, economic downturn, and massive moral social movement. That's how, that's how it changes. And we're in the midst, and, and pandemics. Four ways, Pan you pandemics, war, economic downturn, and moral social movements. We have three of them happening right now. We have a pandemic, we have an economic downturn, a depression, whether we like it or not, we're headed there, and we have massive moral outrage. Now, I've been working with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and, and, and on June 20th, the way we're getting at this is we're bringing white and black and brown and gay and straight and, and trans people together to agree that there are some fundamental wrongs we all have to address. Racism in all of its forms, systemic poverty in all of its form, ecological devastation in all of its form, the war economy in all of its form, and, and this false moral narrative of white evangelicalism. And you can't be at the table, white, black, or otherwise, unless you're willing to address all five of them. You have to understand they are interlocking injustice. And we start with racism. So I'm, I'm glad to see the diversity in the street, but I also want to see a moral, this moral fusion where we take on all five of these interlocking injustices together. I don't go with people who say, you're just not going to find any white people to do that. Well, if you want to live in that place, live in that place. But that means you don't understand how we got out of slavery. That means you don't understand the history of the civil rights movement. That means you don't understand that there have always been these moral coalitions. And it's the only way history changes. It's going to take a moral movement to have to do that. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. 
Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, Charles, I know you and many others believe that our, 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 our white allies should not even be asking, what can I do to help? Why not? Because I think, as the mayor just said, this, this is the seminal moment. Isn't this what we wanted people to be opened up to what the systemic problem is and now what can I do to help? The first thing you can do is to understand what we talked about yesterday. The ask is huge. The ask is huge. No matter what we pass, we're gonna have to pass a hundred more of a hundred years. You have been refining this weapon for centuries and every time we think we knock it down, you bring it back in a more elegant form. And so that you built it that long, it's gonna take that long to get it done. So don't, don't believe that it's going to be quick, dirty, and you can ask me and I can tell you, donate to this clause and vote on this line and that's gonna do it, because it's not, right? The second thing is, I need the, our allies to show me, demonstrate to me that you can break the cycle of disappointing us because you have been doing it from the beginning of this country. If the South would have just agreed to the North consistent, continuous compromise on slavery, they would have still had slavery. We would have had the Civil War, but the South would, wouldn't do that. I need for the white allies to show up and not be half foot, foot half in the game. The Freedom Song was seven, 700 plus mostly white people, went to the South, did their thing. Martin Luther King will say, okay, two years later, he goes to Chicago. He goes to march, and he's marching in the South, a couple of hundred, maybe a hundred white people show up and maybe they're violent or whatever. No, 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 thousands of people show up to protest Martin Luther King in Chicago. And he is forced to say in his speech at Princeton, he was shocked because this is a, these were the, some of the same people, the allies who had sent money, who had come down, but what they were activated by was embarrassment. They were activated by a shame to the race. They were activated by the cruelty of, of Connor, and but they were not interested in full black equality and kind of fixing this problem on a fundamental level. He was shocked by that. And okay. what I'm trying to say is, I don't want you to be out in these streets because you're embarrassed. I don't want you to be out in the street because you, you you're just against cruelty, but not for my full equality. I want you to be all the way in with both feet. Mm. Okay. I want to pacify okay. Rashad, can you speak to this? Because the, yeah. the you were saying last night that 7 million people have showed up in the past eight months, as opposed to one point, whatever the, the, the number yeah. was. And we all see that the protests are much more racially mixed, inclusive gatherings than we've seen in, in, in past demonstrations. Why do you think that is in this moment? Well, I mean, I think actually I agree with a lot of what Charles said, and I think that that's why it's so important that we think about, well, how do we help people take strategic action in this moment? I don't want to infantilize white people and make them and, and talk about it as if they don't know, right? I think we were actually given a real gift in that Amy Cooper video from Central Park, because very rarely do we see the strategy 
on video uh, that she picked up the phone and lots of times we get it after the fact or we or we know what was actually happening. But in this moment, we saw her say, there's an African-American man. She knew in that moment, if she said it, she had all the tools in place that this liberal could sort of say the right thing and then get the right reaction. She could use her power and her position to sort of uh, own that situation and own that level of power. And so we actually need uh, people to engage and respond in a different way. I really appreciated um, Nicole talking last night about ensuring that we're not just talking about policing in this moment. People don't experience uh, issues, they experience life. That the forces that hold us back are deeply interrelated. That a racist criminal justice system requires a racist media culture to keep it alive, to keep the sort of demand for it in place. That economic inequality goes hand in hand in inequality. We have to vote in that process, but we can't simply tell people to vote. We have to focus on district attorneys locally so we're being strategic about where we're putting our energy and holding folks accountable. Okay, we hear that. And we all know, I think, that voting is one of the most empowered things anyone can do. Did you all see this this video the other day that went viral? It's been viewed about 4 million times or 5 million times. A woman named Desiree Barnes, a former Obama aide, struck a chord on the internet with her passionate plea to the protesters vandalizing her neighborhood in New York. Let's watch a part of that. You think about what it's like to be a black woman in this neighborhood who lives with people in public housing, who now has to walk through, who bag your grocery, who drop off your food, who defends you, who go uptown to a hospital to serve this community. And you think this is a protest? I gave my blood, sweat, and tears for this country. I served this country for 10 goddamn years. So when you think about this anger and this rage, because there's a way to get answers. Every single last one of you got to be registered to vote. So, Mayor Bottoms, as we're trying to make our voices heard, you've said that voting would be the most effective response, the deepest payback for each minute that passed when that Minneapolis policeman pressed into Mr. Floyd's innocent body. What do you want to say about that? Oh, that um, that moved me just just watching that and her anger and, and her frustration is what so many of us are feeling. And what we know is that is how change happens in this country. And it, it's not about one election. It's not even about two elections. Because what we saw, we had an Obama-Biden administration for eight years, but the work had begun and it needed to continue for eight more. And I think, if anything, people have to understand that it's, a, you know, revolution is not a one-time event. And we've got to keep going back and keep going back and keep building and keep building. And something I've been giving a lot of thought to the past week is where did we fall off after the civil rights movement? Did we all get so complacent because we got good jobs and good houses? Many people did anyway. And then we thought the work was done. So if there's any lesson to be learned, you got to keep going back and you can't just walk in and vote for the president and turn around and walk out. You got to vote down ballot and you got to vote in every single. Because the local election. elections is what determines who your district attorney is going to be. Your local elections is, determines 
what's happening in your community. Stacy, today in 2020, you more than anyone else on this panel understand that voter suppression is a real issue. Otherwise, we'd be addressing you as Governor Abrams in this moment. And um, you wrote a powerful op-ed for the New York Times this week titled, I Know Voting Feels Inadequate Right Now. What do you have to say to people who feel, still are feeling that their vote doesn't matter? Well, I think the first reality is that for a lot of folks, getting to vote is the struggle. Voter suppression is real. Voter fraud is a myth. But millions of Americans who thought that the Voting Rights Act was going to open the doors keep running into roadblocks, keep running into buzzsaws. And it is disingenuous for any of us to presume that the inaction is on the part of the voter. There are millions of people who want to cast their ballots it's simply not possible. And so our first responsibility is to call out voter suppression and call it what it is. It is an attempt to block the voices of black and brown people, of young people, of people who want to see progress. We keep talking about power as though it's the system that's, you know, this structure. Power is people. And we can't disembody it because when we disembody it, we give it even more authority. Power is who gets to set the laws, who gets to vote for them, who gets to sign them, who gets to enforce them, and who gets to judge them. And that happens at the local level, it happens at the state level, it happens at the federal level. At the yeah. local level, Oprah, you're absolutely right. It's the question of who are DAs, who are mayors, but it's also a question who are judges? Who's putting that child right. in jail or in prison? At the state level, the state does three things, educate, incarcerate, and medicate. And when the monies go to incarceration versus education or medication, then we get the results we get. And at the federal level, the onus of government is to create a structure so that at every level of our lives, we get the support we need to get opportunity. But if we don't remember that these are people we're talking about, the same people who get angry and who use racial epithets and do them under their breath are the same people who are writing those laws. Because when we think about the eight years of the Obama administration, what we forget is we got two years of grace and then we had 2010. And what we are looking at happening now is that when we didn't vote in 2010, when we couldn't vote in 2010 because of voter suppression, but also because of inaction or apathy, or what I would actually say is typically despair, what happens is people step out and things change. That's why I'm fighting not only against voter suppression, but I'm fighting for the census because $1.5 trillion of our money goes out every single year to address these issues. But if we do not participate in the census, they can ignore us for another generation. And that's what happened in 2010. But it's also the consequence. The people who were elected in 2010 wrote the laws for the next decade. And so as we think about this election, as we call on people to show up, we have to remind them we're not just relitigating and redoing the 2016 election, we're redoing the 2010 election that took the House of Representatives and blocked every legislative initiative of Barack Obama and Joe Biden for eight years. We are talking about the structures of government that led to school board members who ran for office pledging not to invest in poor children. State legislators who said, we're going to strip you of your reproductive choices. And if you're living in one of the Southern states where you have the highest levels of maternal mortality and you're three times like, more likely to die because you're a black woman, those were all decisions not made by a system. They were made by people who do not see our humanity. And that's not just the humanity of blacks, it's the humanity of people of color, of young people, of the disabled, of anything that does not advance their power and advance their privilege. And so I want us to be very clear that voter suppression is real, but so is the power of the vote is an inadequate answer. 
when I hear people say, just go vote, I know that there are a lot of folks who are going to try who won't make it, but it's not just go vote. It is keep trying to vote and keep getting people to go vote with you and understand that the systems are people. And if we can beat those people at their game, if we can take their jobs, if we can demand more policies, and if we hold them accountable once they are in office, that is how voting changes. It does not do it on its own, but our extraction from the system, our distance from the system, our invisibility in the system is what guarantees that they continue to keep their power. Okay. And let's say yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, Bishop Barbara. And, and Stacey, here's, well, here's a race point here. We got to get white Southern politicians that are run like you ran in the South. Let's own this. Democrats have run from the South. If you can control the 13 former Confederate states, you control nearly 170 electoral votes by just controlling 13. You control 33% of the United States House and 26 members of the United States Senate, which means you only need 25 from the other uh, 37 states and you only need 20% from the other 37 states to control the House and control the Congress. We had 30-some presidential debates since 2016. We have 140 million people in this country who are poor and low wealth. 61% of black people are poor and low wealth and not one debate on poverty. Not one. We've had less voting rights today than we had August 6, 1965, and not one debate on poverty in the primary or in the general, Democrats or Republicans. We just saw the Senate and the House pass three bills, black people dying at a rate that, that is disproportional. Not one of those bills gave essential workers the essential things they need. We gave 85% of that money to corporations. Not one bill gave our people, gave health care, gave unemployment, uh, uh, living wages, uh, sick leave, even, as I said earlier, the protection of their water from being turned. And I watched you, Stacey, as a black woman. If we could have white <laughs> uh, Democrats to run like you did in the South, and if the South had invented, you might not say it, but I'll say it, they didn't invest strong enough to party in your race. Neither did they invest strong enough in Mike Epps' down in Mississippi, because he, there's a certain racism even in the way in which the South is written off at the very time that the demographics tell us if you organize black and uh, white people, particularly poor, low wealth, you can win the South. So there again, race factors in. We have to challenge I, I, even the Black Caucus, even the Black Caucus, love them. But if 61% of Black people are poor and low wealth, why isn't poverty one of our major issues? Not the working class, not middle class, but the poor, the poor. If 61% of our people are poor and low wealth. If we do that, if we focus on that, Oprah, we, we will have an expansion, an explosion if people know if you vote, they get health care. If they vote, they get a living wage. If they vote, they get decent unemployment. If they vote, they get sick leave. And we can't just say, wait till after the election, then we'll tell you we're going to do these things. We mm -hmm. need to be talking about them now. So last question, you all. Um, now that we have the focus of the country, what is the mayday, mayday call for Black, Brown, and white people to do? What should be urgent for all of us right now I'm gonna start with you, David, because this whole show started, the idea for this whole show started because of conversations we were having personally about what the ask is. So what's the ask as you see it? And I want everybody to be able to weigh in. What's the ask in this moment? Well, as has already been said, you know, uh, part of why we have the focus of the nation is the images we have seen. Emmett Till, was the precursor to the Montgomery bus boycott. 
Bloody Sunday was the precursor to the uh, Selma March that led to the Voting Rights Act being, being passed. We now have this image of George Floyd being lynched before our eyes. And in the moment, the ask, with, with a bus boycott, it was segregation. With uh, uh, Selma, it was voting rights. With this, for me, everything we have talked about is part of it, but police reform. How do, does this not happen again? What has to happen to the police? I love what has happened with Black Lives Matter. I just saw on the parliament in London, Black Lives Matter. I cannot tell you how crazy it is for me as someone who grew up in the UK to see Black Lives Matter on the houses of parliament. But Black Lives Matter is a statement of fact, a brilliant and true statement of fact. So bringing some nuance to these conversations, equipping white people, these white people who have been reaching out to us to say, what do we do? These are, we have to articulate to them what we actually want. And so for me, the art is now on us to articulate the asks in the way it was in the past, voting rights for black people, police reform. That's the thing that I think is, has everyone's focus and the thing that I think we now need to really articulate. Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, Jennifer, I saw you raising your hand there. The Mayday Mayday asks... Well, um, sometimes we conclude that reform is not uh, possible because we're focused on reforms that are either not effective or they're not um, adequately evaluated. And this is um, certainly the case for implicit bias trainings that we're seeing um, in our schools and workplaces and certainly seeing them in um, you know, police departments all over the country. But we know little about its effectiveness um, and to the extent that it's evaluated at all, you know, um, officers are asking themselves at the end of the training, uh, uh, did you like the training? So that's the the, the main you know metric that we have out of this. And so I I guess I would say you know as a as a researcher and a scholar is that we we don't want to try approaches that don't uh, work and, and and don't even evaluate those approaches and then and then decide that change is not possible. Charles, you raise your hand. Yeah, I'll be just very quick. I think we need a civil rights bill, two thousand and twenty. I think we need to wrap in a lot of what Reverend Barber is working on. I think we need to wrap in what the, the Congressional Black Caucus is working on, on police reform. I think it is a broad concept. And, and, and we shouldn't be shy about being bold. Uh, that's, how you, that's how you negotiate anyway. You're bold and you negotiate, you, you, you compromise back from it. But be bold. That's exactly what you need. I read today online, somebody wrote, the safest neighborhoods are not the ones with the most police. They're the ones with the most resources. This is about resources. This is about power. This is about protection. This is about making government function as well for you as it functions for somebody on the other side of town. And the only way you get there 
it is, it is in a bold action. And if blood is going to be required of us every time that something happens, you make it bold. You make it bold. Mm -hmm. Professor Aram. Well, I mean, I would say the ask is, is building an anti-racist America. The, the ask is removing from our vocabulary this term, not racist, these terms like race neutral policy and, and realizing that there are racist ideas that suggest that certain <clears throat> groups are, are better or worse than others. And there are anti-racist ideas that, that suggest we're equals. In other words, we have a nation where racial inequity is everywhere and people believe it should be that way because they believe black people should be poor. They believe they have more because they are more. And so I think it's completely transforming our even framework for even understanding this problem and really seeking to build a nation where we have life and, and we have health and we have equity and we have justice really for all. Stacey Abrams, The Ask. Three things, one, call on the U.S. Senate to pass the HEROES Act, which will fund and put guardrails on our elections so we actually have them in November. It will fund the census, which is going to allocate $1.5 trillion and political power for a decade. And it's going to fund state and local governments because as budgets get cut, the things we need get cut first. Number two, fill out the census. Go to my2020census.gov because that is the allocation of political and economic power if your community didn't get PPE during COVID-19, if your community doesn't have the resources it needs, it's because of the census. Fill it out. And number three, vote. Vote like your life depends on it because as we see every day, it does. Thank you. Rashad. I want to just plus one on everything that Stacey said about voting and the census and all the ways that we have to um, do the work to engage. The final thing I will say is that we also have to recognize that as much as we have to focus on the written rules, we have to focus on the unwritten rules. And the fact of the matter is we turn on our TV, we see images every single day which encourage sort of this type of understanding. We have a plethora of crime TV shows on TV right now that create a magical world where race and multiculturalism exist. You see tons of black and brown characters on these shows, but it's a, it's a world where black and brown people exist, but racism seems not to exist. And so we actually have to challenge the type of images that come into our home because we know that they feed the type of demands for a racist criminal justice system. They feed the type of demands for fixing black people and black families instead of fixing the systems and harm and hurt us. Thank you. Ava, I wanted you to speak to that because everything that you create includes those images that allow us to understand that there is a complexity to life and that there is also racism involved. Yes, you know, certainly. And, and, and I love this conversation because you're a question, um, you know, for as many people are, that are in the room, you'll have as many answers. And I think that's right, because we're talking about, you know, literally systems, interlocking systems that, you know, have been created over, over centuries, 400 plus years, and that it's not going to be one bill, one election, one anything that's going to get it done. I started to think about these images that Rashad is talking about. What can we do? The big thing for me, and I'll be quick, is I started to try to understand why was George Floyd's tape bringing me to my knees in a way that all of the racist violent footage that I watched for 13th and reviewed all of the, the, the beatings and, 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 and uh, to make Selma and the tapes of the boys being interrogated and prison surveillance tape and all of that for when, when they see us. Why did this one bring me to my knees? And it was because for me, I could see both faces in the frame clearly looking at the camera, 
right? And I could see that officer that Charles was talking about yesterday, clearly. And it led me to think, wow, I usually don't see the officer. I usually, the officer is behind a body cam or some fuzzy surveillance footage. Just seeing that officer's face and then knowing his name and holding him accountable, witnessing who he was and what he was doing is something that's been missing. So where we are as artists, we started something called the Law Enforcement Accountability Project. We call it Leap, leapaction.org, where we are about to use narrative change to start to tell the stories and identify, amplify the identification of cops who kill black people, right? We can no longer have this blind spot where we don't know their faces and names. That's a small thing that we can do as artists. The challenge is don't ask, do, and what can you do where you are on top of the, the brilliant things that Stacey and, and, and Rashad and, and everyone else is talking about. So it's like um, a national registry for police officers. So that- But it's, yeah, it's using, it's using art to really state, uh, to really make sure that we remember their names and faces with the hope that eventually, that some accountability, police unions are not holding them accountable, courts are not holding them accountable. And as Stacy said, the power lies with the people. So we're gonna know your names and we're gonna know your faces. Right now, if Tamir Rice's murderer walked up to any of us, would we know him by face? No. Can we say his name? No. But no. we know the names of our brothers and sisters who've been murdered. And so it's not to glorify- We do know that he's been moved to another precinct. We, we know that, we know that. But do the people in that community know where he is? So we'll use storytelling to do that. But it's just an example of, working with what you have, where you are as an artist, that's what we're doing. And uh, we have to uh, think about changing from a posture of asking to action. Of that answer. I'm going to you, Mayor Bottoms, and then to you, Nicole, and then you, you'll close this out, Bishop. Mayor Bottoms. Um, my mother recently said to me that this America didn't feel like 1965 to her. This felt like something before 1965. And so I think it's important that we restore moral leadership in this country. So I think for every single minute, those nine minutes that his knee was on George Floyd's neck, each of us needs to commit to making sure that nine people are registered to vote, that nine people fill out their census form, and that we also write down nine things that we want to see changed in our communities and send it to your mayor, send it to your city council people, because if we don't hear the voices, we don't know always what the people are crying out for. And so put it down on paper, send it to your local leadership so nobody can say that they didn't know that this was an issue. And then finally, if you've been a part of mass gatherings, please get a COVID test. Because the reality is that when we see so many black and brown people gathering in this country, the chances of us getting COVID and dying are higher than most. And we all have to be around to make a change in this country in November. Great point. Nicole. So I feel like if we are in truly unprecedented times, then we have to ask for un or demand unprecedented things. Uh, when we talk about voting, voting, of course, in America is the hallmark of citizenship. It is truly how in this country we define citizenship. But what are we voting for? I don't know my Bible very well, but I do know that faith without works is dead. Black people need to know that when they are voting, they are actually getting something for that vote. 
too often black Americans are being forced to vote, not to, just to hold where we are, not to lose our gain, but we're not actually being able to vote for what we need in the future. Um, so politicians who understand that black people are the base of the Democratic Party, court those votes very heavily leading up to the election, and then they drop black people's knees like a bad habit as soon as they win. Uh, the second thing is clearly police accountability. Um, police will not stare into a camera and murder a man if they don't think they can get away with it. We need accountability, but we also need to reform police departments so that they are not occupying black communities but serving black communities. What I hear from black folks is they do want policing, but they want the type of policing that white people get. Policing that's respectful, policing that serves, not being over-policed on small petty crimes and walking down the street, but not being under-policed when someone kills our family members and there's almost no time. The solve rate, homicide solve rates in black communities are egregiously low. So yes, we want policing, but give us the policing that white people get in demand. And a third thing I'll say is, it is easy to put a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard. It is the easiest thing in America to say that uh, agents of the state should not be able to kill citizens. What is much harder is to look at the fact that our Black children are segregated today in their schools as they were in the 1970s. Black people remain the most segregated racial group in this country. That's where civil rights stop, is when civil rights started to get intimate with where Black white people live and where they sent their children to school. So we need to do something about the segregation that creates a dragnet of disadvantages for black people. We need economic restitutions for black people who have descended from slavery in this country because until black people are made whole economically, it won't matter that we can have every legal right in this country, we still will not be able to exercise our full citizenship. And thanks for uh, having the show today. Thank you, thank you. Bishop Barber, take us home. First of all, I want to remind us that blessed are they that mourn. That may sound strange, but I hope we don't move from this place of mourning too fast. There is a necessity to mourn like it should be mourned for. I heard somebody say today that this country has not yet learned how to mourn for Black people because we try to put a Band-Aid, we try to heal things too lightly. I don't want us to turn these, these protests into parades. Secondly, I want to say to those in the Congress right now in the midst of this pandemic that we, this pandemic has exposed that America has two great wounds, the wound of racism and the wound of poverty, and they are national security threats. And the fact of the matter is, to this date, in any bills, even the one being proposed, the HEROES bill, it is not being done from the poor and the low wealth up. It is not addressing the issue of race. We need to go back and fix that if we're going to be serious. How in the world, in a pandemic, can you not change health care and make sure people have health care? That just blows my mind, especially when you know people are dying. You may, you may have, before this, you may have said it, you couldn't afford it, but certainly now after you found two and three trillion dollars for corporation, you can afford it. The next thing is we are asking on June 20th, 2020, for a mass poor people's assembly moral march on Washington, a digital affair. We were planning to be on Pennsylvania Avenue and then COVID hit, but we're organizing a mass moral fusion group of people, black and white and young and old and gay and straight and Latino and Asian and native who are organizing around a complete agenda to deal with systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, and this war economy, and to take on this false moral narrative of religious nationalism. So is it a viral march? Is it a viral march? Viral march. Yes, I'm on June 20th. And we've sent out 50 million invites. We have 150 partners, 45 state coordinating committees, 16 major religious denominational Where do we go? Where do we go? We want to participate. www.june20.org. 
And what you're going to see that day, Oprah, is not people pontificating for the poor and speaking on behalf of the poor. When we had planned it for, for Pennsylvania Avenue, it was going to put white coal miners on the stage with black folk from Alabama, white women from West Virginia on the stage who with folk from white black women from California, uh, the Apache Nation on the stage with Latinos, all in saying we need to deal with all five of these issues, not one of them, but all five of them, a moral fusion movement, which goes to my last point. I would say that we need to look at George. And yes, George had that racist cop lynch him. But before George got to that corner, he was being suffocated by the policies of this nation. He lost his job in COVID. He had, didn't have decent unemployment, didn't have decent sick leave. He went to Minnesota to get a job. He got a service job, which we now call an essential job, but it didn't give him the essential things he needed. So by the time he got there on that corner, he was already being suffocated mm -hmm. by the damages of this society. Therefore, if you're going to honor George, yes, we got to fix policing and have a federal law that makes it a federal case of murder if a policeman in the name of the state kills somebody. But we also got to address all the other things that was trying to suffocate and kill George. And that's why on June 20, 2020, you can go there, June 20, 2020, people can go .org. You're going to see that. You're going to see people coming together. And lastly, Oprah, in this moment, when we say, I can't breathe, I'm asking everybody from a deep spiritual place to remember that breath in the Bible is ruach. It's the breath of God. And that we have come from a people who have faced more than us, as ugly as what we saw on camera. We come from people who saw much more death and much more blood, and they didn't have anywhere, but somehow they opened themselves to the Ruach to breathe in them. And I'm asking us as a people to say, if I might be 48 hours from my last breath, because with COVID, any of us, no matter what money we have, no matter what titles we have, we could be 48 hours from our last breath. Or if I could be the victim of someone putting their knee on my neck. If I knew I had 48 hours of breath left, what would I use my last breath for? What kind of world, what kind of justice, what kind of health care, what kind of fight would I render against racism? And I'm asking us to live like we only have 48 hours of breath left. To take that, not morbidly, but seriously. You may live another 48 years, but in this moment that we're in, it is important that the last breath that went out of George comes in us. And that all the breaths of the people who have died, that shouldn't have died, that went on those ventilators, that their breath comes into us. And we say, with everything we're gonna, we have, we're going to breathe more life into this democracy because all this protest that we see is really justice trying to breathe. Equal protection under the law trying to breathe. Providing uh, for the common defense, trying to be breathe, promoting the general welfare, trying to breathe, and the establishment of justice is just trying to breathe, and we've got to help them. Amen. 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 Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your action. Thank you for being with us both nights, and I appreciate the conversation. May the conversation and the actions that need to follow be executed and continue. Thank you all so much. Good night. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. 
rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.